Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 21st, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With us again today, following a brief vacation, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Welcome back. You were you. you were you were off somewhere sunny, but you 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 show no evidence on our Zoom video here of any kind of a a tan. So I guess my you Eastern are, European uh, heritage conspires against me ever tanning. So okay, there you go. I I, <laughs> I myself go to the beach and I'm like a mummy. So I I I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, also with us, executive editor A Greenwald, not tan at all. No, I have the same same problem. Same Hi, problem, John. but not not that you've been anywhere near, near the sun. No, yeah, you can't get tan in your apartment anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. And Noah, you you Noah Rothman, associate editor, you you have a sort of swarthy demeanor, but I don't know whether that means that your skin is comparably swarthy. No, it's just my general swarth. It's yeah. sort of an olive complexion. Uh, you I do have olive complexion, so. And- yeah. I take vitamin D supplements. So my um, my uh, my late sister Rachel, uh, who had olive skin, she could lie in the sun for six hours without moving, enjoying the feeling of the sun on her skin, and I could last six seconds before diving, you know, under a tent. So, um, uh, I used to think that there was something immoral, like that there was something wrong with me, that this was the case, that somehow it just showed that I was a wimp and that I didn't understand the, you know, the, there was, everybody felt about sun the way I feel about sun, that actually people can enjoy the feeling of the sun on their skin, which I don't, which I don't have. But, uh, but uh, I, it took me a while to understand these so understand these differences and i'm sure this is really thrilling to everybody who wants to know what's going to happen in america in the biden era um so uh we have uh, a flurry of activity uh in the first uh, 24 hours a uh, bunch of executive orders and everything um i think we want to hone in on uh two or three of them with uh and i think we we alluded to this yesterday on the podcast with megan mccain but uh jeffrey I believe it's pronounced Zients, but I could have it wrong because, you know, I believe in the Zients, Jeffrey, Z-I-E-N-T-S, who is the COVID coordinator for the uh, for the Biden administration, coming out and saying, oh, my God, you have no idea the mess that we've been left with. There is no plan. There is no plan to military. Everything is terrible. What a nightmare. We have to start from scratch. There's there's nothing. Um. Which is which is uh, which is great to hear. Uh, at the same time, by the way, apparently new newly minted White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki will be having a briefing at four o'clock today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the saint of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who apparently is exempted from this assault on the <laughs> last year's implementation strategies and the horror that has been the mess that has been left at the door of the biden administration so um question here is is this i was looking back uh and i i remembered that in 1992 in december bill clinton had an economic summit in uh in little rock where he summoned heads of uh, heads of companies and economists and everything to little rock and then announced very dramatically that things were way worse 
than they had ever thought they were. I mean, the hand that they, but it's just terrible what's happening. And they thought things were getting better, but you know, they're not. And it's really terrible. And so we're starting off in a terrible situation. In 2000, George W. Bush summoned economists and heads of uh, companies to Austin for a private, not a public summit, uh, came out and said, oh, the economy is slowing down. It's really terrible. Oh, things are, you know, we have to make sure that things aren't so, because all of this is a kind of, they're handing me a bad hand. And then, of course, Obama, who didn't really need to do this because everybody understood he'd been handed an unbelievably bad hand um, because of the financial meltdown. But uh, they all want to start by saying, oh, my God, like, look what I have to clean up. This is horrible so that they set the expectations so low. And, Noah, you were noticing a quote from, I wish I knew how to pronounce his name. I'm still going to say Zions, so we'll go with Zions until somebody corrects us, Um, uh, where he says an interesting thing, right? Uh, Actually, yeah, this is from Tom Frieden, who's the former director of the Centers for Disease Control in the Obama administration. Um, who said the following, quote, I think we have to level set expectations. Now, what he was referring to there was um, that there's only so much that the administration can do on day one, and it's so terrible. But what we've been hearing out of the new administration for the last 24 hours, um, yesterday we had a quote that was published in Bloomberg from an administration official, not a quote rather, but on background, that the, the pandemic is worsening. We're about to enter the worst possible stage of the pandemic, which, if you'll remember, according to Joe Biden, was supposed to be January. January, we were supposed to see 5,000 people dead a day. By the end of the month, a half a million people total dead from COVID, which fortunately we have not seen. Um, actually, the numbers are looking kind of good. We had a decline beginning on January 8th, and it's been relatively sustained, cautious optimism. you know. But we're getting vaccines out in a, in a pretty brisk pace at this point. And so far, we have some reason for some cautious optimism, but there's storm clouds on the horizon, what have you, whatever. Nevertheless, the administration is talking this down, and they're in the press, and you have reporters and CNN saying, um, at, at repeating this credulously, administration officials saying, there's, quote, there's nothing for us to rework. We are going to have to build everything from scratch. Now, that's just not true. It's just a lie. There is a vaccine distribution plan. It was developed in September. It's undergone several revisions. It's imperfect, which is whatever Joe Biden's plan will come up with will be imperfect because this is a live and evolving crisis and you need to adapt with its evolution. But clearly, as you're saying, the evidence points to an expectation setting game where they can drive down expectations and then bolt off that to claim some credit for whatever successes we have in the spring. But it's really annoying to see the press become complicit in this strategy. I suppose this is a return to normalcy. I mean, if you wanted to return to normalcy, this is what you get, which is a complicit press that treats the Democratic administration like the home team. Um, But it's still nevertheless very frustrating. There's this other kind of um, sort of preemptive excuse um, that we're hearing which is that uh, the problem is that um, with Trump, there was, in lieu of a federal, of a national plan, it was left to the states. Um, and that uh, there should have been some sort of uh, stronger centralized plan to to vaccinate the entire country. I, I, I mean, maybe, but I, I don't, I, if you ask me, that, that would present a much greater problem in terms of um, efficacy um, trying to disseminate uh, vaccines across the entire country um, without 
somehow allocating uh, these these this the process uh, throughout the states. I mean, obviously, it would have to be in the Biden administration if it was to defer to state level governments. I mean, it's not going to defer to Christy Nome and, right. and and DeSantis in Florida. It's going to defer to people like Andrew Cuomo and Governor Murphy and um, uh, uh, Gavin Newsom in California, which is precisely what you don't want to do. I'm willing to accept that when they say things like we don't have the means to track vaccines and production levels. We don't know how many are left in the stores. We don't have any of that information. I'm willing to believe that. I'm not close enough to the ground to say otherwise. And the notion that the gears of government simply stopped working over the last two months sounds pretty plausible to me. So I am willing to give them some credit here for inheriting a mess from the Trump administration because the president has checked out for the last two months. Nevertheless, the notion that no plan exists here is demonstrably refutable. It's on the internet. Just look at it. Google it. Well, um, and, and, and we also have, exi- we already now have enough information, even at this early stage, to know how the, which distribution plans are, have been more effective in states and which have not. I mean, as you mentioned, DeSantis in Florida is vaccinating more people and, uh, you know, Cuomo is not. And the, the attempts to, and, and we were discussing this a little bit before we started taping, but the attempts to actually overlay sort of, you know, equity and racial justice narratives from a federal level top down approach, which does seem to be a, another thing that the Biden administration is now raising is actually going to slow a lot of efforts, right? That's uh, here in D.C. We are already seeing that, that, that certain wards that are predominantly white are being told to wait for when appointments open. They have to wait several days until other wards that are largely minority um, get the first sets of appointments. And even, and the, my question, of course, is, well, what if they don't show up for appointments? What do they do with the leftover vaccine? This is going to be happening with this sort of top-down approach because the ideologues have a lot more access from the top down to, to set sort of policies. At the local level, it's 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 not quite as easy to do that, at least in cities other than D.C. <laughs> I mean, just in the interest of accuracy for at the state level, Florida and New York's distribution of the vaccine is pretty comparable uh, as far as numbers go. For a while, New York was outpacing Florida. At the moment, Florida has just outpaced New York by about a half a million doses distributed. Um, but they have comparable shots used, and New York has really mismanaged the shots that it has used. All these reports about the that them having to throw out vaccines and they're changing their system around in order to get vaccines into arms rather than throw them out. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that is abject mismanagement, but in terms of total numbers, they're pretty comparable. I mean, you look, the, the, the central thing about a federalized system is that um, uh, what you want to say is, you know, the States, it's more efficient to do things as close to the ground as possible uh, why? So that uh, things can be um, uh, adjusted to uh, deal with conditions on the ground as they happen. So uh, what happened in New York uh, two weeks ago was that uh, it was decided that things were happening at the you know at the neighborhood level that were not uh, fitting. Cuomo's grand vision for how the vaccine distribution was going to go. And he started threatening clinics that were vaccinating people who fit at least the broadest possible categories of people who were to be vaccinated. They were either essential workers or, you know, whatever, or very old. So maybe they were alighting it because it wasn't time for the very old to get vaccinated yet um, and threatening them with million dollar Fine. So that that in and of itself creates an interesting wrinkle in the um, federalist, our support for federalism, which is 
what if at the state level you're dealing with, uh, you know, basically somebody uh, who's really bad? Um, the the virtues of the federalists, the federal of doing this, uh, are that it's more improvisatory, um, and in a crisis you need to be able to improvise. Uh, but if you have somebody who doesn't want improvisation, then it's going to be worse uh, somehow than not having a federal system at all. My my major complaint against the uh, against the Trump administration's plan and what's happened here actually goes to the experience of people who all they want to do is sign up, right? They, they just want to sign up. So um, uh, this, it strikes me, is one of the very few things that a coordinated response among 50 governors or 50 heads of the departments of health of the states or something like that under the aegis of the federal government could have arranged over the 10 months of the, of the, or the nine months or whatever of the, of the, uh, of the virus crisis, which is where's the database? Who's going to, how are we going to set this up so that people can go to a website and say, I need a vaccine and click on and, you know, and have a, a geolocator saying where they are and then show them where the clinics are and have a list of appointments in, in New York. Uh, there is no centralized in the, in the state of New York, there's no centralized database. So there are 40 or 50 or 60 clinics and you have to go one by one by one, clicking down a list to see if there are appointments available. And they're now apparently mostly all gone. This is, this is not the way it should be in 2021. Like it's, this is, this is what the internet was made for. It's why we have, you know, FileBook Pro or, you know, I mean, database programs are what the, or, or what made the internet the internet. And nobody either thought, or 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 everybody was so you know obsessed and crazy that nobody sort of said you know what we can do here is at least set it up so that when the public needs to interface with the vaccine uh there's going to be a system in place for them to get appointments and how that wasn't thought of by people by the by the world of of public health again we've been doing nothing but trashing the world of public health but you can see why because in fact they don't care about public health they care about politics and they care about ideology and they don't care about the practical aspects of public health which are you know if you need to get a flu shot where do you go to get your flu shot that's all we care about in terms of public health is is the flu vaccine? Not, I'm not even talking about the coronavirus vaccine now. But you know, if, if uh, you know, if you need the flu shot, where do you go to get the flu shot? Tell me where to go. Are you? Is is this all happening normally? And uh, are, the, are the regulatory bodies making sure that you know the flu shot isn't um, is doesn't get adulterated or screwed up or something when it gets goes from the goes from X point to Y point or something like that? But that's not what they're there for. Obviously, they're there to tell you to wear two masks. Wear three masks. That's the latest, by the way, is you should wear two masks. I don't know if you guys heard that, that one. I've heard that. I haven't heard three masks yet, but that's got to be like... Well, if two is good, why wouldn't three be better? I mean, I mean, they're, sure. li- I don't understand what the potential limit is if it's all like a kind of... Uh, anyway, uh, But, you know, by the way, while we're on that, though, that's another aspect of the, of the uh, Biden uh, announcements around um, COVID that I actually find very, very depressing. There's a lot of emphasis on mask and um uh like uh ppe production that um seems to me like if that's 
where their focus is or if that's what they can sort of talk about uh, most confidently, um, then where then they're not um, as sort of aggressive about vaccines as 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 we'd like. Right. I mean, that that's not what we would. Well, it's not really what we want to be hearing about uh, in in late January of 2021. Well, and I, I just have to say that the mask, the mask challenge that he issued, you know, on his first day, I, I feel was not well messaged. I mean, it's one thing to say you have to wear a mask on federal property. Of course, then maybe your grandkids when they're on federal property celebrating your inauguration should probably put a mask on. <laughs> just, you know, again, I don't, it doesn't bother me. They're outdoors. They're probably all in the same family unit, but that's, that's the game that's been getting played for, you know, almost a year now. So if your message is, I'm really serious about the science, then everybody's got to fall in line. But this idea that it's some to to gamify mask wearing at this stage of the mask discussion and debate seems to me not all that wise. Um, I think it's also a culture. It's it's simply an aspect of the culture war uh, written. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Democrat Republican thing or a conservative liberal thing that somehow mask wearing has now become identified with being serious about the virus and ultimately being a Biden voter and somehow being skeptical of mask or mask wearing is, is, is a species of the Trump. So, there, so it's one of those low cost things where if you say everybody needs to wear a mask, you're actually not getting crosswise of anybody who really likes you. You're only sticking it to the people who don't like you if they have this irrational fear or just, you know, I mean, nobody likes to wear the mask, but, you know, I've been wearing one for nine months and, you know, that's life. So, uh, you, you, you know, you can get used to anything and it's, it's a lot, it's a lot less bad than a lot of other things that can happen in your life. But, uh, you know, it's one thing to it's one thing to sort of impose new conditions on everybody who doesn't like them. Um, it's another thing to impose conditions on people uh, because you're kind of sticking it to them a little bit, right? I mean, I think that's part of the the <clears throat> the obsession with masking has a lot to do with the the um, the the libertarian rage at the notion that you were being required to, to do something that obviously Americans of a certain order don't want to do and think it's, it's evil for government even to, you know, suggest that they should, how they should behave. Um, with that, let me just step back for a minute and talk to you about uh, our friends at ExpressVPN. Uh, as we know, social media and big tech have been bulldozing over our rights and freedoms until they've silenced every last voice of dissent. They will not stop. Will you be bold enough to stand in their way? Look, you could just deactivate all your social media accounts, but that would be giving the left just what they wanted in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites revoke your right to free speech, why not revoke their right to your data? That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. Ever wonder how free-to-access social media companies make all their money? They do it by tracking your searches, your video history, and everything you click on, and then by selling your valuable data. When you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address that makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network, and the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. Trust me, this is true. 
You just tap one button on your computer and your phone and you're protected. It's time to finally say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. And again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Okay, so we have talked about the COVID... Uh, pessimism and its utilities uh why don't we talk about a couple of other things like the uh cancellation of the uh keystone uh, the american right of way access uh to the construction of the keystone pipeline from alberta to the gulf of mexico um uh something that uh, Obama had put an executive order in outlawing and then Trump reversed the executive order in lawing and now Biden has issued an executive order outlawing thus paralleling the famous switch in administrations on the Hyde amendment banning uh American support for organizations that preach uh or 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 affect uh, abortions abroad uh that with the ideological or partisan change in administrations came a change in the executive order governing the Hyde Amendment, and now we have the uh, Keystone Pipeline, which is clearly the latest version or iteration of this. Um, uh, what's interesting about the Keystone Pipeline is that uh, it is not about the extraction of energy. We, we are not extracting the energy that goes into the Keystone Pipeline. We are merely... Um, Helping to construct it under under the earth, uh, and uh, as uh, the Wall Street Journal details today, we're talking about ten thousand American construction jobs, good, you know, good unionized jobs uh, in 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 many states uh, that are uh, literally people are you know basically the company that has been building it has to throw them out of work now because uh, because the Biden administration has um, has trashed it. Uh, and uh, and of course the other joke is that the it's not like the oil that is extracted from the ground in Alberta isn't going to go to the Gulf of Mexico. It's just going to go on trucks uh, that emit a lot more CO two than than a pipeline which emits no CO two. But this has become some symbol of I don't know what exactly. Like a pipe is bad because it could leak. Uh, it's not. It's a symbol of the war between people who want us to move away from fossil fuels versus people who think that uh, exploiting fossil fuels to the extent possible that keeps their uh, that actually keeps their cost low, which of course also uh, inhibits the power of f- uh, bad foreign actors who have a lot of oil supplies from screwing with us because it makes them less rich than they were before. Uh, anybody got anything to say on this subject? I mean, only that it's incredibly reckless at this time in the pandemic and with the associated economic fallout to, you know, essentially kill a jobs killing program. One that has kind of frustrated um, some pretty outspoken members of uh, Canadian uh, government. Because, you know, this is this, all this stuff is in the works for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's reckless and irresponsible, but it's also a sob to an ideological faction of the coalition that 
that Joe Biden hasn't really given a lot of attention to. And uh, it, what we're seeing with a lot of these executive orders, and I think there are others you're going to talk about is, uh, or, or even proposed legislation, is that it's designed to satisfy a restive element of the Democratic coalition that doesn't feel seen to by the Biden administration. And then you have, you know, I'm thinking of the uh, immigration order in particular, not order, but uh, proposed legislation, which is really expansive and really pretty reckless. Um, that reporter, Rachel Bade, who works at Politico, said that, you know, the people they're talking with and within the, the Biden team don't even expect it to get a vote. Well, you have it, to see what it is now. Uh, right. So that, that there's this uh, proposed immigration legislation that would not only provide <clears throat> citizenship, you know, moving forward, but also, half, you know, half it, half there's, well. right, but there's an executive order ahead of it that prevents uh, deportations um, and up even in, in, I'm speaking out of turn here because I haven't read any of this. I've only read reporter summaries of it. So I haven't read the primary docs, but that um, it would prevent deportations, uh, even people with criminal records on um, the moratorium begins, I think tomorrow. Um, and that's so, and that's, you know, the background to this immigration vote, but it is, you know, an effort on the part of the Biden administration to project, you know, that he, that they are, in touch with the woker elements of their coalition. They're not totally hostile to them and to keep them within the tent. Um, I don't think it's going to work because a lot of this is, is not going to have the effect that they want. They want a very revolutionary effect. They're not going to get it. Um, but it does signal that the Biden administration knows that they have a revolutionary element on their side that is giving them a little bit of rope now, but they're not, they're not going to remain placid forever and could very very actively work against the interests of the administration in much the same way the conservative insurgents worked against uh, more traditional elements of the Republican party for the last half decade. I mean, I, I honestly uh, find um, look, Biden is a liberal Democrat and he won the presidency and his agenda is going to be a liberal democratic agenda. And we are going to be here to talk about it and the problems with it every single day. Um, Biden in his uh, inaugural speech talking about how, you know, we need American unity, particularly to face, uh, you know, the foe of the coronavirus. Uh, that doesn't mean that I expect or that any conservative should expect that he's going to turn around and not do things like suspend the Keystone pipeline if it is in his power to do so. He has said he's not going to end fracking which involves the extraction of shale oil from American, uh, you know, for, for under the ground in the United States and employs hundreds of thousands of people and generates multi-billion dollars a year in export income. Um, he's He explicitly said he wasn't going to end it. He may end it on federal lands. He's not going to. But we should not expect that he isn't going to do things like suspend the keystone pipeline particularly if there is a if there is a um a precedent in you know the prior uh, democratic administration but that doesn't that also so i don't even know if it's a sop i mean you know one can presume that they believe the world would be better off if there was no keystone pipeline i just don't understand i i i i don't understand why <laughs> because it's not going to keep 
the oil from coming out of the ground in Alberta. And it's not going to keep it from going from Alberta to the Gulf of Mexico on trucks. So I don't understand. You'd have to have a fundamental understanding of how market economics function to get that right. Like you'd have to understand that there's demand and there's consumers and that that demand uh, doesn't exist. It doesn't cease to exist when you try to legislate it out of existence. Like they don't, they don't get that. Well, the other thing is, and this is, you know, we are, we are, we are, we are hearing uh, Tony Blinken said in his hearing, and we're hearing all this, you know, we Biden wants to get America back its seat at the table internationally and America's relationships with its allies abroad and with everybody needs to need to be reformed and fixed and all of that. Well, Canada is our most important foreign ally. Uh, you know, we have a border, we have a 2000 mile border with Canada. Um, you know, we, we, all like so that doesn't matter like our relationships well, the, with canada don't matter no it doesn't because like for well for the climate act it does actually in in reality but the but the climate activist class which i think is i think Noah's right that he's they're getting a sop is that rejoining the paris climate accords is seen as dealing well and you know, suddenly we're all back in the world's embrace and this i do think particularly on climate this is going to be a really interesting thing to watch the biden administration navigate because in some sense, there's a kind of let's go back to th- the way things were. That's what I was elected to do. We're going to rejoin all these international agreements. We're going to stop the Keystone Pipeline. But his, in his own, you know, Democratic caucus, are some people who are who've moved well beyond going back to the status quo. The status quo is not, you know, since then, you know, we've had Greta, and Greta has told us all that we're going to burn in hell if we don't stop, you know, this climate change. So, and there's a, there's a that message has fallen on very uh, ready ears among progressives. So he has to the symbolism is not going to satisfy them for long is my prediction and how he will navigate that will be interesting to watch. But, uh, you know, just on this point of, of there actually being no practical point to doing this, um, it occurs to me that symbolism tr- has triumphed over uh, reality on the climate stuff and environmental stuff for ages. I mean, why the rejection of nuclear power, which is clean by relatively clean, by those who are promoting a clean environment, uh, if if not, why you know the the sort of like iconic symbol of uh, pollution uh, are these shots of uh, power plants and the and the tower with the big vapor coming up the, the the cooling tower right like that's supposedly you know but that actually that those aren't pollutants those are cooling towers that's steam that's that's what keeps things clean. And 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 safe, you know. So, but Steam but it, is a greenhouse. It's a greenhouse generator, Abe. Hey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's bad too. Can I do a brief? I'm sorry. Continue. No, no, that's it. no, no. Just so 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 that is that has become you know that is just a way to approach this. Generally, there's this runaway symbolism of certain things. Can we do the Paris Accords briefly? I mean, I, I, everybody makes a mountain out of this thing. It it really is relatively even the right and the left. It's less effective than everybody wants it to be. It's a toothless piece of uh, paper. It serves mostly to legitimize um, polluters in places like China and India, because again, it's toothless. You set your own recommendations. You don't even have to meet them. The United States has met them without being in the the Paris Accords, what have you. But the thing here is that we're going back and forth over this, you know, whatever president has an effect when one president is there, it's not in effect when another president is there. The only reason that we're going back and forth on this is because the Biden administration, which loves it so much, won't submit this international treaty to the Senate for ratification, which is what you do with a piece of paper that constitutes an agreement that you you think is important enough to write down 
That's what you do. You submit it to the Senate for ratification. The reason why they won't is because the Senate won't ratify it. And the people who who say, well, that's, you know, that's the obstacle here, think the problem is with the Senate and not the treaty. So the constitutional process is less important to them than whatever this piece of parchment says. And we just kind of had this big highfalutin conversation about the inviolability of the Constitution and how we need to return to constitutional norms and the procedures that typify government. And the very first thing we do is throw it out in favor of this ideological project. You know, something comes to mind here. I, I've been wanting to say for a week, and I keep forgetting <laughs> to do it, um, but it, it was triggered also yesterday uh, by Biden's uh, speech. Uh, as everybody who listens to us knows, we were as horrified by the storming of the Capitol as anyone. Uh, I called on uh, called for Trump's impeachment and removal an hour into the siege, and so no, no one, no one can get to my, you know, can get to my right or whatever can get, you know, to can be more militant on this than, than I. I am, however, horrified and somewhat disgusted by the invocation of the the term sacred space to describe the Capitol building and Capitol Hill. Uh, this is not a sacred space that is political idolatry. The Constitution is not a sacred document. The, the, the Torah is a sacred document. The Quran is a sacred document. You know, uh, the, the New Testament is a sacred document. The Constitution is not a sacred document. And Capitol Hill and the White House and the exec are, these are not sacred spaces we do not refer in a in a representative democracy to the to the both the symbols and the practical outlets of our representative institutions as being sacred they have we are all sacred if we're all made in the image of god but um our constitution wasn't made in the image of god and the building and the capitol building was not made in the image of god and it is not a sacred space and i this this um this use of religious terminology which of course is used in part um to uh deepen the horror of the event itself by saying it's not just that our you know our capitol building was you know uh, trespassed upon and trashed but that a sacred space was invaded by what? By evil. I mean, what 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 goes into a sacred space to kill it? And I'm not even saying that it, what happened wasn't evil. I'm I'm just saying that this terminology I think is cringe-inducing and weird, and and the sacralization of the secular uh, is is a is part of what got us into this problem in the first place. Um, yeah. No, that's actually, it's such a hugely important point. And I think a lot of people skipped over that. And it also undermined what was, I thought, the most powerful part of his message, which was, bring we got to bring the temperature down. We have to, uh, th- this return to politics as being something boring, mundane that we might squabble about, you know, in terms of policy matters, that's where we want to get. But if this is sacred, rather than this is a this is a, an important civic space that represents what we try to do as a democracy, that's very different. And it does, it makes it difficult to bring the temperature down if if half of the country is seen as supporting or actively involved in something evil that's destructive at, at a kind of 
politics as, as, you know, religion basis. And we've argued about this or talked about this for a long time about we need to get politics out of more things that it's in now in culture and in, in daily life and talking about sacred, uh, as you say, John, that that's actually the wrong direction to go in. I mean, we are, we are a country whose most important public building in certain, in some sense is called the White House. It's called the White. It is, it is a deliberately down market, downscale, plain, shaker furniture description of the building in which the person that we hire to run our government or the executive branch of our government for four years gets for free, right? The way the way we give an apartment to a super in a building. It is the White House. It is not the, you know, it is not the mansion, the president's mansion. It is not, you know, Montage. It doesn't even have a name. You know, it's not called, you know, the, you know, whatever. You know, it, 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 it is, the, it is a White House sitting in the middle of a city. Um, and of course, it doesn't feel that way to people. And it's now, you know, behind twelve miles of of gates and, you know, streets around it are all closed off and we treat the person in it with an entire federal agency whose main challenge is to keep this one person alive. Um, So obviously the president is a different kind of figure from the figure that the person who lived in the building that we called the White House was supposed to be. Um, but he still but it sure isn't. Oh, go ahead, Abe. Sorry. But he still called only Mr. President also, another another yeah. simple um, designation, yes. Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, I think it's really, uh, it's, uh, there's nothing to be done about it. And it's, it, it, the intent is, is almost unconscious. I mean, it is unconscious and then it becomes a kind of meme or a, or a cliche, you know, to say, oh, they violated the sacred space of our capital. And there was all this talk yesterday morning as I was flipping around. It's like, you know, as a reporter, when I go into the Capitol, I cannot be, I, I feel a feeling of awe. You know, it's like I would walk through the building, said, I think Casey, Hunt, I can't remember who, or, you know, Nora O'Donnell. And it's like, you want to whisper because it's so, it's so awesome. The awe is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's like an office building in which Many corrupt people are stealing your money. I mean, it's well, and not- if it's wor- if it's working well in a regular day in Congress, you're walking around and with the echo effect, there's a lot of chatter with the with the you know hard surfaces everywhere. It actually has a nice hum to it that's pretty mundane and yeah. means people are getting things done. It shouldn't be like a church yeah. at all. I mean, it so isn't a church. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not like a libertarian who thinks that all of it's government like is theft. But you know, what? It's more like a train station. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if uh, a building in which, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, and Sheila Jackson Lee uh, take prominent roles is not a sacred space. It's almost exactly the opposite of a sacred space, you know, uh, you know, even the, you know, the. Uh, you know the 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 money lenders weren't inside the temple they were they were at least they were at least slightly outside the outside the temple anyway uh, i i just had to get that off my chest even though it bears no relation to what it is that we were uh we we were uh, talking about before and uh since we can maybe get back to that before we get back to that uh and to try to find our equilibrium yet again it's time to talk about finding your equilibrium with Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. 
Headspace, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Even in the new year, it's hard to start a new routine. But if you are one of the 34% of Americans who made a resolution to be less stressed, Headspace is here to help. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And backed by those 25 published studies on its benefits, those 600,000 five-star reviews, and those 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. Look, you deserve to feel happier in Headspace's meditation made simple. Please go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Um, I can connect what you said, what you said yeah. about sacred to what we were talking about with these, which is um, whether or not we're going to bring the temperature down in our political discussions by making things about, you know, sort of existential moral arguments versus policy matters. And there's a lot of policy stuff to be debated on the right and the left, particularly with the new administration and Congress in the hands of the Democrats. But whether those arguments get framed as good versus evil or good policy versus bad policy is going to be really important, I think. Well, okay, so let's talk about good good policy versus bad policy, because I guess this is the question I sort of alluded to in a, in, in more general bore. Um, uh, the, the general thing that has been said on the right is that, look, 74 million people voted for Trump, so he's still Trump and he's a, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, 81 million people voted for Biden. More people voted for Biden than Trump. Biden got 90 two more electoral votes than Trump did and he won more states than Trump and he took states away from Trump and kept the states and flipped back the states that Trump won. Uh, and so they they get and they have the House and they have the Senate, though, by razor-thin margins. So they, they get to claim uh, that uh, – it is their time to implement their policies and it is our job to explain why those policies are bad to try to, you know, uh, see if, uh, if, if sweet argument can sway a couple of people and might, uh, might do something to retard the relentless advance of some of these things. Um, and it, and if those policies are implemented and have the bad effects that we think they will to do something about, uh, to see whether or not uh, the arguments that we marshal can have some effect on reversing those gains at the ballot box later. But uh, the objection to Biden's unity message that, well, he's going he's gonna to put in policies that I don't like, so therefore uh, he shouldn't, you know, Unless he wants to, you know, cut taxes and, uh, you know, uh, fight the 1619 project, he's not doing anything to, to unify the country. Seems to me you have to really try to think about this on the other foot. Like when Democrats and liberals said that, you know, Trump was, uh, Trump's efforts and actions were illegitimate, 
uh, because they didn't like them, uh, they were wrong. And I think the same is going to be true of the right in its response to Biden. A distinction that nobody seems capable of making anymore is one between policy preferences and first principles. Uh, those are really distinct things that we should be able to draw a big, bright line over, but there it's been blurred and the distinctions elided for so long now. And in part because all our mediums are hot. Twitter is a hot medium. Television is a hot medium all of a sudden for no reason. Um, you, you have to be hot. You have to be emotional. And every, every argument has to be elevated to this violation of uh, moral principles. As Christine said, it becomes an existential debate. Uh, I happen to think that the 1619 project and those around it do rise to the level of first principles in part because it justifies discrimination um, as a remedy for discrimination, um, which to me is in violation of a, a variety of principles. But that's a line you can draw as opposed to, for example, environmental policy, which is a policy preference that should be subject to negotiation. It should be on the table and you can horse trade it away. Um, but we don't do that anymore. We don't engage in, in horse trading anymore. Um, and that's part of what's got us into this into this real rut. Fair enough. I mean, I also think that uh, when we... Let's take the, 69 pro, the 1619 Project as, as an example. Um, uh, this is an idea about the United States that... Uh, that has a polemical force and is part and parcel of this effort that the Biden administration is now taking on <clears throat> to say that one of its core missions is to combat <clears throat> systemic racism. Um, one of the things that we seem to learn in the democratic primary process was that a certain idea that we all had about the black vote was not true, which is that the black vote was um, a, an, uh, a hard support for democratic progressivism. And what we learned instead through the behavior of James Clyburn and the general conduct of black voters, both in, in 2016 when we tended to ignore it uh, in its preference for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, but then in 2020, I think it was unmistakable, was that the black vote, it turns out, is not woke. It is not progressive. That is, I mean, it's it's liberal, it's left-wing, it's, uh, you know, it's the core of the democratic base, and it is not interested in the social revolution of wokeness, or seems to be interested in things other than the social revolution of wokeness. That said, if the Biden administration is going to take as one of its missions the combating of systemic racism, systemic racism is wokeness in its purest form. Uh, a massive federal jobs program would not be wokeness. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of other sorts of policy preferences that could go on the on the on the grounds of sort of like activist democratic policy that is not nonetheless not woke um you know uh certain types of welfare payments certain types of extensions of benefits i i don't know well and that that that's why it was extremely telling when when one of the first economic programs and about small businesses that biden announced during the transition he specifically said this is going to go to people minorities first Minorities right. and women are going to get targeted. And that's why people had a very strong reaction to that for that reason. This was not about 
you know, assuaging economic challenges for everyone in this country right now. It was we are going to target and give first privilege to these people as a as a form of reparation. And Noah has made this point several times in just private conversations that we all have. But it's really important, which is your point, Noah, which I'll let you make about who who speaks for Black America and who is Black America. But by the way, that well, I, I certainly before, can't. No, that. Well, no, but I mean, like, the, who are the spokespeople in right. the? We hear a lot from the the sort of woke spokespeople of progressive Black America who claim to be speaking in the interest of their fellow African Americans. Right. But that's well, okay. So I just want to uh, interrupt before Noah Noah goes into this because I I think when Biden says we're going to do all this economic stuff and we're going to throw it at minority businesses first. That is old time politics. That is, you voted for me. I'm going to do what I can to distribute goodies to you. Trump did that with the white working class. He did it in his own incompetent, weird way, you know, trying to save jobs at Caterpillar or, you know, even even if you look at the Muslim ban or or efforts at restricting immigration as a form of a sop to his own to his base and saying, okay, I'm going to do what I can to turn the spigot on and direct it at the people who got me here. That is old time transactional politics. Implementing curriculum changes in school to change the impression of the American school child about the United States is not doing constituent service for the people who got you elected. That's you're doing something else they don't care about, and that a lot of people not only don't care about but hate. But um, even if you don't hate it, it's like, well, what is that? How is that going to affect the price of bread? You know. So that that's I think that's that's where I that's what I'm wondering. So even though I think that it's like potentially unconstitutional and a violation of the 14th amendment and the civil rights act to say, I'm only going to put money toward this ethnic group or this racial group. Nonetheless, I understand it in political terms. It's but it was, but it's re, but he's not framing it in the old style. I guess is what I would point out. Like now, it has to be reframed in this in this um, systemic. It, like we are solving a systemic problem, which extends from jobs to education to the. So it's this. It, it's it's bringing in what I agree, John, are old fashioned political payoffs that that everyone does on the right and the left. It's bringing it into this broader umbrella, which I think has very pernicious effects when it's certainly in education, but in other arenas as well. And we'll, we'll see those. And as to the illegality of it, local, I forget which Pacific Northwest state did this, but they tried to do this. They tried to enact policies that were directly targeted to African-Americans and minorities, and they lost. They were not. A court said, you cannot do that. This, this is not legal. Look, my favorite example of this, uh, given my parochialism, is the first big snowstorm in New York under uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio. And de Blasio's main policy prescription was don't plow the Upper East Side. Plow other places, but don't plow the Upper East Side because we're there's a new sheriff in town and they don't get plowed or they'll get plowed last. You know, it had this kind of... So this is what political power at the local level is for, is to make sure what you actually want to do if you're mayor of a city is make sure that everybody gets plowed. 
I mean, it's a cartoonish example of it, but it illustrates the ethos of social justice really well, which is essentially the policy prescription. The overarching policy prescription is downward social leveling. Right. Come up and do for the people who inherited all this privilege at birth, who aren't even aware of it and need to be made aware of it through retributive policy, public policy. It's right? in, it's oh, it's yeah. part of the vaccine problem too. It's it's the it's the it's the plowing writ large, right? We, but again, this is we'll, back we'll, to the, we'll get the vaccine last. And, and, and just like that I had made brief. We, we all we the, the we all need the vaccine for to, in order to get the immunity. Right. So people, voters, more likely aren't necessarily attracted to the idea of vengeance against the people that they are supposed to not like. They want a leg up just like anybody else. They want their conditions to improve, not the other guys to, to suffer. But they're not represented in media In media. Biden voters, most, you know, the, the African-American voters who delivered him the nomination late in the game were, are not present on television. You're the most, I speak from experience as an MSNBC contributor, though I haven't been on in a very long time. My colleagues over there were pretty woke. They weren't, you know, South, South Carolinian churchgoers. They were the types that wanted to see re- retributive, redistributive policies of the sort that precluded support for Joe Biden. They didn't represent the Biden base. Right. Look, it's important to note that the uh, the official in the Biden administration who was brought on to sort of be the voice of black America in senior councils is Representative Cedric Richmond. Um who is a moderate in relative moderate, a Southern African-American former congressman who just resigned from the Congress to, to take on this, to take on this job. And the question is whether uh, this confusion of, as I say, sort of woke policies like uh, curriculum control or, uh, um, you know, having having turning the conversation away from what can we practically do to improve the lives of black people in America in 2021 to how do we make reparations for an evil system that was ended 160 years ago? What What is going to be the dominating conversation inside the White House? That's what we need to see. Because one of the virtues of defaulting to the reparations conversation is that it's all theoretical and all wokeness. A lot of wokeness is you can make right dear colleague letters and stuff like that at the education department and it doesn't cost you anything and you don't have to make any arguments. You don't have to get it through Congress. You don't have to fight your ideological adversaries. You, you throw bones to people because they're cost free. Well, and the and the the, the biggest reward for those go, comes to the progressive white liberals. It doesn't actually help. I mean, this was the whole defund the police problem, right? It makes you know white liberals feel like they're doing something for racial justice, and they don't actually have any skin in the game. Like literally, they it doesn't have an effect on where they live and how they live. Whereas the people whom it does affect, who actually are in many of these neighborhoods minority Americans it has an immediate and violent effect on their daily lives. So that's actually, I, I, I think like that's the Biden balance that he's going to strike here will be interesting because he, it does make progressive white liberals feel really good to do all this stuff. And that's it, that we shouldn't underestimate that feeling of, you know, sort of moral clarity and superiority and what that does for them um, versus the practical realities of people they're 
claiming to help. You know, I, I think there's also an interesting message in relation to the to January sixth here in the way that uh, liberals and leftists have been talking about the insurrection at the Capitol, which is that it takes them two words to get to the idea that this was a white supremacist insurrection and that the purpose of the insurrection was white supremacy and you see see it's white supremacists and white supremacy and yes there were nazis there there were the, if, if that's if that's where you want to go with white supremacy like the guy with the camp auschwitz shirt and whatever else was going on this is actually if you want to build a coalition of people that are going to support you in broad brush in your argument that the that the right uh, has been infected by an insurrectionist disease, and you want to use that to go into the suburbs and to harden the support that Biden and Democrats got in 2018 and 2020 from formerly Republican voters, don't go to the white supremacy argument. You go to the insurrection argument. You go to the hate America argument. You go to they want to destroy our democracy argument. You know, this is a version of limiting your coalition's message and and pulling it back to something that where you want to make a different argument from the argument that is actually both right in front of everybody's face because it's the major thing. And secondarily, you are trying to get people to bend to your priors and your ideological obsessions rather than make a positive, even if you want to consider this positive, but if you want to make a positive political impact, you will say, this was an effort to go at all of us, to go at the institutions that guard and and, and, and protect and enfold all of us, and not this was, an, this was aimed at black people, because that is actually crazy. It is crazy to look at the 6th of January and say that this was a white supremacist effort to push down people of color. This was an effort to to uh, create some kind of a psychotic revolution that, or counter-revolution that would keep Donald Trump in power. And maybe if you want to say the sole purpose of Trumpism is white supremacy, then fine. But you have this incredible political opportunity if you are a Democrat right now, which is you take people who in the last two elections, who used to vote Republican, who now vote Democrat, and you want to make them part of your permanent coalition and you do that, you, you're not going to do that by going woke. You're not going to help yourself with the black base by going woke. And you are not going to help yourself with these swing voters, many of whom you can turn from being swing voters into reliable Democratic voters if you default to your furthest and most extreme argument. It's exactly what happened with Trump. Trump won people over in 2016, and then he defaulted to his base and sh- and, and and ended up as we said from the first day of January 2017, his coalition wasn't big enough and he needed it to get bigger in order to win re-election. And he got 45.9% of the vote in, or 46.1% of the vote in 2016, and he got 46.7% of the vote in 20 in 2020. He didn't, I mean, he, he grew it a teeny bit, but he didn't grow it enough, you know? Grew two percent, uh, as opposed to what what he could have grown it otherwise. And the Democrats, of course, grew it from sixty six sixty six million to eighty one million. So um, that's that's I think the interesting political challenge is the siren song of the woke left is that it can be paid off with commissions and with 
bits and pieces of symbolic policy, but those will dominate. That they will; those will be the dominating ideas and forces of the of the administration. Well, and it won't even necessarily satisfy them. Over, you know, we did have another Antifa Black Lives Matter uh, F Biden <laughs> rally in the Pacific Northwest. We had American flags burn. You know, there was another police. I think it was a police station that was that was uh, smashed up. And oh, and, and the they, they and the Democratic Party and the Democratic offices, offices yes, yeah. and they carried a, ba- a banner that said, "We are ungovernable." So. Suddenly, you know, like good good luck to you, Joe Biden, because here's your coalition, like reminding you that it doesn't agree that all the problems have been solved now that Trump is removed. You know, if I were Biden, just to drive, you know, Fox as crazy as Fox could ever be driven crazy, I would go in with a massive federal response and put down Antifa in Portland and then see what the press has to say about it. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Not to mention good. It would be good because it should be done. And I don't care whether it's done by a Democrat or Republican against a Democrat or Republican. The assertion of public order against, you know, evil. That evil cannot be done good. unless the governor declares a state of insurrection, as we learned, unfortunately, over the course of the summer. But he can publicly castigate every public official in Oregon, in Portland, just to make it pretty clear that they're not doing their jobs. That's not hard. Ooh. Man. So much opportunity. Anyway, uh, we will be back with you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.